Thank you, Max. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. I'm really delighted to be here and to talk in the seminar. And I'll tell you um, a lot of things, maybe too much for one talk. And um, there are two parts. One is general and um, justifies a distinction I take to be of um, very general application in metaphysics. The distinction is between two concepts that I call power and dispositions, which are often run together. And then I try to show that this is in particular useful for one traditional problem in the philosophy of perception, which has to do about, um, the, about appearances or qualia. So the first part is about dispositions in general, about the metaphysical theory of dispositions, and uh, so I start with uh, very uh, well-known things that are all very controversial, and there's just one slide that would fill at least a whole seminar or more than one seminar, and I take one of the most usual examples from common sense, which is fragility. Everyone um, uses this kind, of this kind of example to start with. And I look at more uh, scientific dispositions afterwards, because I think that it's better to find out about uh, what's really going on in reality if we follow the lead of science. But I start at least, like everyone else, with common sense dispositions like fragility. So uh, the problem with Disposition predicates like being fragile is that when you uh, attribute these predicates to objects, it's not obvious, it's not observable whether it's true or not that the, the predicate applies to the object. So the truth condition, whether or not it's the case that the vase is fragile, is not observable. And there has been a lot of work, and I'm sure you know about uh, this work, showing that it's not easy at all to analyze the truth condition of uh, such attributions of disposition. And the best uh, you can say, which is very problematic, is that what makes true the sentence that the vase is fragile is uh, counterfactual, which has to have a citrus paribus clause. So it's, not, it's, a, it's problematic that it's a counterfactual conditional and not a material conditional, but you can't do it with material conditionals. That has been shown by Carnap in the 30s. And unfortunately, it's not possible either to analyze these uh, disposition attributions with simple counterfactuals. You have to have this citrus parables clause. That has been shown by many people uh, in recent years, uh, and among others by Alexander Bird. If you have exceptional circumstances uh, that Bird calls antidotes, the vase can be fragile and still it would not break even if it fell. So uh, I just take this for granted. What makes it true that the vase is fragile? And one way to classify answers is to say, there are, there's a realist position and reductionist position. The realist says the disposition is something that exists. 
this is a predicate that attributes a property which is not observable, but it's still a real property. It's like a theoretical property when it comes to scientific dispositions. And so we can take it at face value. It, it re the vase really has a property which makes it the case uh, that it's fragile. And the reductionist, which is the majority of uh, recent analytic metaphysicians, says there is nothing uh, like fragility and especially if you think of uh, scientific explanations of fragility, it will not mention fragility at all uh, when you try to explain why the vase breaks when it falls. You will get to other things which are not, not dispositional and mostly um, what people say, like following Quine and Armstrong, for example, they say it's microstructures. That's what makes the vase fragile. So fragility doesn't exist. What makes true the attribution is something else, which is a categorical structure. And my topic, or my um, way of uh, making progress with this problem of uh, what, what is the truth maker of disposition attributions, is to think about what is called traditionally multi-track dispositions. This is a term that is, um, has been in use for a long time and um, it was not exactly used by Gilbert Ryle, but Gilbert Ryle explains uh, a, dis a distinction between several kinds of dispositions and one of these is what I and many people call uh, multi-track dispositions. In fact, I'll afterwards tell you that it's not a good idea to call them like that. But that's a traditional way to call them. So what is a multi-track disposition? It's a disposition that can manifest itself in many ways, not just in one way. And mm, competences and uh, psychological states are almost all the time, in fact, all the time, multi-track. And speaking a language is a kind of disposition competence, capacity, which can manifest itself in infinitely many ways. You, if you ma manage, if you are competent in language, you can speak infinitely many sentences. And if you play a musical instrument, you can play, you can, um, you have dispositions to behave uh, in a very large number, not just one disposition to behave. So now I give you two examples of such multi-track dispositions and one is subjective and one is objective. So this makes, um, uh, makes things a little more complicated than what is usually said, but it's not so important for the metaphysics because the subjective dispositions, they are just subjective because they are dispositions of subjects of experience, so it will be important for me when I explain perception. But in a sense, they are also objective, so maybe we can come back to that. So a subjective power is just a psychological power. It's a power of the subject. So, and of course, for the moment, I haven't yet said what a power is. And uh, the example I show you is um, a scientific discovery. So this is to um, convince you that it might be sometimes scientifically interesting and fruitful to postulate powers. It's not just metaphysicians that make up these things. 
And uh, so here is a very surprising psychological phenomenon that has been discovered in 1960 by George Sperling. And Sperling introduces or postulates a new entity in psychology that has not been known before. He, in, he invents a concept that says there's a new kind of memory that have to, has to be postulated to explain this interesting phenomenon, and he calls it iconic memory. And so my idea, um, or my way to make sense of this is to say, iconic memory is a power, a cognitive, subjective power, and it, it, this is the right way to think about what is traditionally called a multi-track disposition. So I tell you about the, the phenomenon. This iconic memory is visual, decays rapidly, it exists for a second only, then it's, it's gone. And uh, you can show its existence in an experiment that has been replicated many, many times. If you look at um, psychology departments, you'll find this uh, experiment online, so you can try it out for yourself. You be, you're shown a matrix like this with um, here that 12. That's about the size that Sperling experimented in the beginning. There's just arbitrary letters or numbers, so you can try it with only letters, only numbers. Um, never mind, they are arbitrary. And the, the issue is um, about how much of this you can take in in a very short amount of time. So you are shown this for uh, 50 milliseconds, which is very short, uh, a very short flash and then it's gone, and the human memory stock, uh, uh, stocking capacity is limited, and you can remember more or less four and a half. So psychologists will run this experiment, hundreds of subjects, and each subject, I don't know how many times, and then you make an average and you say the human working memory is just big enough to take up, in 50 milliseconds you can take up four or five, more or less. And if you, t if you show 16 or uh, 35, people will just re remember four and a half. Uh, it's some four, some five, well, that's the, there's not more than can get through uh, in this um, working memory. And the surprising fact comes with the partial report condition. So this is a little sophisticated and um, it's, it works in the following way. You must condition the subjects in such a way that they will concentrate only on one line, but they know which line they are supposed to concentrate on only after, have been, after having been exposed to the stimulus. So you show them the matrix, the matrix goes away, and then you hear a tone, there's some uh, indicator of which line you're supposed to remember. So high pitch, middle pitch, low pitch, you have three tones that are very easy to distinguish. And after the, sh after the matrix has been shown, so it's gone, it's, uh, the 50 milliseconds are over, you hear the high pitch and then you must recollect, you must introspect your memory the, tr the memory trace, which is still there immediately afterwards, uh, after having shown matrix, and you, s you check what, is, what was in the first line. And then, wh whatever line you ask the subject to remember, the subject will remember three on average. So, 
there must be nine somewhere stuck in the memory, nine uh, on average, which are not all accessible. You can, you can remember three of each line. So somewhere you must have nine Im immediately after the, uh, the stimulus. But you cannot recall them all. If you, uh, in the whole report condition, you will remember only half of these nine. Uh, well, that's what I just have said. And uh, so um, the only thing that I have not yet said is what how this gives me um, a reason to introduce the distinction between power and disposition. There is one, the, um, the scientist postulates one entity, this iconic memory. And this one entity is supposed to explain three dispositions because subjects have the disposition to report three items of the top row if they are, if they get the triggering for the top row. They have also a disposition to report three items of the bottom row. So they have, there are three dispositions and the iconic memory is postulated to explain all three. It's only one and it's supposed to explain three different dispositions. And so I say there are two things here. One is what is the ground of the several dispositions and that's what I call a power and then there are all these dispositions which are uh, not identical to each other and here is an objective power I don't say more about this than just what is on this slide uh, and, but I think in, in physics all properties are powers uh, well this is especially obvious for conductivity in some languages, it has even a name which is with Ibel or Abel, which, uh, which explicitly indicates that this is a disposition. But uh, if you have copper wires, like uh, these things here, they have, the, and you don't uh, plug them in, they have a disposition to conduct electricity. You plug them in and they will conduct electricity. So there's a disposition there, like just like the fragility of a vase. And... Um, I think we have the same situation as with uh, the subjective power I showed you before. The, the scientists, the physicists, postulate one property, which they attribute to copper wires and things like that, to explain many dispositions, and in fact infinitely many dispositions, because uh, the, the conductivity is just one, it's called sigma, and it explains the uh, current, the electric current that will flow in infinitely many situations which are just infinitely many um, values of the electric field. So one power that grounds, explains all these different dispositions to conduct electricity in different circumstances. You put in more voltage, get, gets more, uh, you will it will have more um, electricity flowing through it. Um, so here, this is a general um, idea. You have, you, we need this distinction for the analysis of multi-track dispositions, but if you think of it, everything is multi-track. So it's very hard to find single-track dispositions. At least uh, all psychological and all physical dispositions I can think of are in fact multi-track. They can all manifest themselves in different ways. 
But this is very controversial. For example, Alexander Bird in his new book, he says there are no multi-track dispositions. So it's, I make it sound as if it were obvious, obvious, but it's on the contrary, um, not obvious at all. And my colleagues say it's false. So I think that they are all multi-track. And so if they are multi-track, we need this distinction between power and disposition to make sense of this, because they are at, at, one, at the same time one and many. There's one, so that, that's the power, and there are many, that's the dispositions, and the dispositions are analyzed as uh, these counterfactuals, which are all also Sater's paribus, uh, which link a triggering and a manifestation condition. And the relation between the two, but I'll develop this in a few more slides, the relation between the power and dispositions is the power gives the object the disposition. So the conductivity gives the copper wire the disposition to conduct, I don't know how many ampere when it gives this uh, voltage and more ampere if it, give, if it gets more voltage. So it, the power gives the object many dispositions. And so what does it mean to say this? That's the uh, difficult question. What's the, what's the relation between these two concepts? And um, so the idea is this. We are, um, co it's correct, we're justified to ascribe a disposition to an object B rather than to the circumstances, if and only if there are intrinsic properties of the object by virtue of which the object contributes causally to the production of the manifestation. So um, this is a, a, the result of um, a reflection on what it takes to make it true that the object has a power which is linked to a certain manifestation. So there must be something about the object itself that contributes to bring about the manifestation. And this is the causal basis of the disposition. So um, for uh, the, the electric current, that's the manifestation. What's, what's, what brings it about that there's electric current? The only reason to justify that you say conductivity is among the causes of this, is that, that there is something about the object itself. It's not all coming from outside. The triggering comes from outside, because there must also be a triggering condition, because the, the, the wire in itself, it doesn't do anything if you don't plug it in. So the triggering conditions, they come from the outside. But it's only justified to attribute to the wire um, a power which is which gives it the disposition to uh, to carry this current. If there's something about the wire that participates in causing the electric current, so there must be both the triggering condition and something about the object itself, and that's what's called what I call the causal basis of the disposition. And so now, when, what, how do we get these multi-track dispositions or these powers which correspond to traditionally, what's traditionally called multi-track dispositions? 
if, if we have several dispositions, uh, they have this index i, and you can, so you get for each disposition you get a causal power, a causal basis. This is the set of properties of the object that contribute to the manifestation. And sometimes it, it so happens that many of these dispositions have um, a common, um, have a causal basis in common. Their causal bases are um, ha are overlapping, and so the the part of their causal basis that is common to the different dispositions that is the power. That is um, well. In general, I say it again. In general, each disposition will have its own causal basis, but sometimes. Many dispositions are connected together, and science will discover that they are connected together. And the connection consists in the fact that there is um, an intersection of the causal basis of all these different dispositions. And the conjunction of the, uh, of the properties that are in the intersection, that's the power. So, why do we postulate power, powers? That's scientists who postulate powers, because these powers unify explanations. You don't have to postulate a different basis for the disposition to carry one ampere and a different disposition, a, uh, a different basis for the disposition to carry two ampere. You have just one basis for all, and that makes things very unified and um, uh, it makes it a good explanation rather than having just many explanations for all, many explanations for all these different dispositions and in psychology it's the same you you uh, postulate one iconic memory that explains at the same time many dispositions for the f for the uh, to report the first line the second line and the third line um, It explains also, so this is um, in response to Bird, for example, who says there are no multi-track dispositions. What, you, what others call multi-track dispositions are just conjunctions of single-track dispositions. So uh, he would say there's not one disposition uh, or one power underlying uh, all these um, counterfactual conditionals about the copper wire. It's just a conjunction. And first, uh, I would say, this is not scientifically satisfactory because scientists would say it's not by accident that they always all go all together. And it's also not by accident they, that you can get them only all, all of them. You cannot get part of the dispositions. For, with the thing, maybe it's easier to think of the, the cognitive subject. It's impossible to have, uh, or well, it's it doesn't happen that you have subjects who can report only the first two lines. You get them always all together. So that that's a reason to say it's not just a disjunct, it's not just a conjunction. There is some underlying ground from which all the different dispositions follow, and they follow always all together. And it would not be so if it, it were if it were just a uh, conjunction. And 
even more important, at least from the perspective of scientists who postulate these powers like conductivity and iconic memory, it's fruitful because in the beginning you have observed a certain number of manifestations. So you, uh, you postulate something underlying, which is the power, and if, if you have postulated it, it will, it will suggest new manifestations, new dispositions for new manifestations that have not yet been discovered. So that's what is called fruitfulness, which is uh, the um, motivation of all uh, theoretical postulates. So here, for example, if there's this power uh, in the subject, which uh, is called iconic memory, it should also ground dispositions that have not yet been discovered. And I think I haven't found whether psychologists have this have explored this. At least Sperling has not explored it. Subjects should also be able should also have dispositions to report columns and diagonals. So first you observe this thing about lines, then you postulate an underlying power, and the power goes beyond the dispositions that have been the motivation to introduce it in the first place. So that's the fruitfulness. And um, so among the arguments that have been um, put forward against uh, the idea that dispositions have basis, there is a famous argument that is uh, called the missing base argument, or the ungrounded argument, that's how Mumford calls it. Uh, so Mumford says, uh, sometimes dispositions have no basis at all. And you remember that I say that all dispositions have bases, and then I, I work a little around this idea of bases to get to the power, which is part of the uh, um, which is which is part of the basis of several dispositions. So Mumford says sometimes there is no basis. So this is uh, incompatible with that, with what I say, and I think it's. Um, not very difficult to resolve the issue and to uh, agree with Mumford because uh, we will introduce a distinction which is not so new. Molnar also say that, says that sometimes there are no causal bases and they always think of <coughs> fundamental particles, elementary things like uh, electrons or things like that. Uh, they say they have no bases or their, their properties are powers which have no basis, charge, spin, these kind of elementary physical properties. And this, I think it's something like a misunderstanding, maybe it's more like that, but in any case it can be resolved by distinguishing between reduction basis and causal basis. And uh, so causal basis is not reduction basis, and the fundamental particles, indeed, they are fundamental because there is no reduction base. That's, it's always difficult to, to speak about these kind of things because we are not we in possession of, uh, of the ultimate scientific truth, so we don't know uh, whether what physics today tells us is true. But if you talk about fundamental particles, it's always relative to present-day physics. So any um, anyway, in present-day physics, there's some fundamental level, and if, if it's fundamental, that's just to say there's no reduction for this fundamental level. That's why it's called fundamental. 
But that has no, nothing to do with the absence of a causal basis. If they are powers and all these fundamental properties like mass and charge and spin, I agree with Mumford and uh, others that they are powers because they are uh, what grounds the behavior of the objects that have these properties. Uh, they, ha um, they are powers and they have a causal basis. It's just not redu a reduction basis. It's just the set of intrinsic properties that makes them behave as they do. Um, okay. So, uh, what is the distinction between dispositional and categorical? Most people say it's an ontological distinction and ask whether there are two sorts of properties or whether all properties are dispositional or whether all properties are categorical. And I go with a minority, so that's not original at all. It's Shoemaker, for example, and it's also this, this idea is also in Mumford. The distinction between categorical and dispositional is a distinction between concepts or predicates. And the same property can be conceived in two ways. Either categorically, you don't conceive it in terms of what it does, or you can conceive it dispositionally in terms of what it does. So that's two ways of conceive of one and the same property. And the distinction is uh, the concept is dispositional if the truth of the proposition object has predicate P entails a priori by virtue of the meaning of the predicate a kind of actual conditional uh, as we, we know it the traditional analysis of disposition. So the predicate is dis dispositional if it's a priori that if it applies to an object, then you have this counterfactual Sidor's purpose. It's fragile as a dispositional predicate because it's part of the meaning of fragility that it falls. Fragile things break when they fall. And there are not all predicates are like that. Some predicates are not do not a priori by their, by their meaning entail such counterfactual conditionals. So that's the difference. It's a, a difference about, about meaning, about language, or about concepts, not about the properties that are uh, expressed by these concepts. So powers can be conceived as intrinsic properties or, as this, uh, or indirectly by means of the dispositions that they ground. Um, so the conclusion of the first part is that we uh, should distinguish the power from the various dispositions it gives the, uh, the objects that have it. And uh, the reasons for the reality of powers are explanatory unification and fruitfulness. And the causal basis must be distinguished from the reduction basis all dispositions have causal power bases. Uh, they, these are the powers. Mm -hmm. And fundamental dispositions have no reduction basis, but they have a causal basis. And so now I'll tell you how I think that we can use this um, framework for um, solving a traditional puzzle, which is interesting in its own and has uh, created a lot of discussion. 
it is a paradox about perception, a kind of Sorites paradox, which starts from a series of observable items, like uniformly colored surfaces. This is a traditional uh, form to, ex to express this paradox, but you can also do it with sizes or other um, phenomenal uh, qualities. And the situation, the, the easiest case where the pa this paradox arises is if you have just three colored surfaces. Here they are not very nice, but you have three colored surfaces and uh, optimal viewing conditions. And so the idea, it's not that my, uh, my colors are not no good. Um, you have to believe me that it's possible to, to make three surfaces in the following way. You make them so similar here, it's not true. But you can imagine that these are made more and more similar up to the point where you cannot distinguish anymore. That's because humans have only finite uh, discriminatory capacities. So you have a discrimination threshold. If you think of colors in terms of wavelength, you make the wavelengths closer and closer. And there, there comes a point where the wavelengths are still different. So they're still physically different, but you can't see the difference anymore. So that's the idea. You have, you kind of create a situation, and this will remind you other Sorite paradoxes. You have a situation where you cannot distinguish these. They look the same. These look the same, but if you compare this to this, they will di look different. And if it doesn't work with three, you take 25, and then it will be very easy to construct, even with a computer. No, I don't know. I didn't manage, but I didn't try very hard. So you, ha you, you get the idea. Each pair of items looks indistinguishable. They say, look the same, can't see any difference. Each pair, and then uh, nevertheless, the first and the last look different. And so why is this paradoxical? Um, the first two share an appearance. So if you think about what goes on in the subject, the subject has an appearance things look to the subject a certain way, so there's a perceptual experience with a certain quality. And this quality is the same for the first two. The quality is the same for the second two, uh, for the second and the third. And uh, so the appearance of B, of the middle, is both the appearance P1 and the appearance P2. And so, by the transitivity of identity, the first and the last should also have the same appearance, but they don't have the same appearance. So this is the puzzle. And Armstrong uses this uh, in his book, um, A Materialist Theory of Mind, 68, to refute sense data, to say this shows that there are no sense data, because if you say there are appearances, take, and take them to be sense data, you get this paradox, so there are no sense data. But uh, now no, no one uh, believes in sense data anymore for reasons independent of this. And you can, and the, the, uh, the paradox is still interesting because take perception in any way you like in adverbialist or intentionalist terms. There, uh, as far as you believe that things appear to subjects, that perceptions have contents and there's a, a qualitative um, aspect to the content, you can construct the same paradox. And so I'll uh, speak about looks 
or appearances, and I think this is independent of uh, how you conceive looks, whether uh, in adverbialist terms as properties of the subject or intentionalist terms in, with um, the notion of an intentional content. You always get the same paradox, and you, uh, there must be some, um, some solution of it. So to find the solution, the, um, the argument that leads to the paradox rests on three general principles, which are the sameness principle, the difference principle, and the um, uniqueness principle. So they, say they are all very intuitive. The sameness principle says, if you have two items and they look the same, because you cannot distinguish them, you, you, you say they, are, they have the same appearance, they have the same look, then there is, a, there is an appearance that is shared, which is both the appearance of one and of the other item. Even if there are no sense data, this you just interpret it as you as you like. If you're an adverbialist, say there is one property of the subject, it uh, this should be um, plausible in all uh, uh, theories of perception. The difference principle is even more uh, plausible. More is longer to state, but it's very plausible. If you have different, if if two items look different. There are two appearances, there are two looks. Uh, so there's an appearance of the first and an appearance of the second, and they are not uh, identical. And this is the most uh, problematic, which in fact we have to drop, the uniqueness principle. But surprisingly, um, all authors of in, this, in this area, they would drop the sameness principle, not this one. <laughs> so um, the uniqueness principle says, for one item, if you have optimal viewing conditions, there's only and one respect, so like color or size, in one uh, dimension of perception, there is only one appearance. If you, if you just pay attention to color and there's a uniform color, as far as you're in optimal viewing condition, the, uh, the color can appear only in one way. So this is the uniqueness principle. And the argument looks very long, but it's very simple. Um, and I don't know if I should really go through it. Uh, a looks the same as B, B looks the same as C, but A looks different from C. So why is this contradictory? Because um, the sameness principle says that if A and B look the same, there must be a look, an appearance that they have in common. If, if um, B looks the same as C, there must be an appearance. This is this one that, look, have, is, uh, that uh, B and C have in common. And the difference principle says that if the first and the third look different, there must be two appearances which are not identical. And then you get the contradiction because um, this is the look of A, this is the look of B. And um, Four and five. Mm, that's the look of B, and that's the look of C. And then you take them all together, and you get that they are all the same. And uh, from three, you get that they are not all the same. That's just um, to. It's I don't know if it's ne useful or necessary to have this, but so you see very explicitly that you need all these three principles. Uh, sameness, uniqueness, and difference principle, 
and um, you could drop either of them. So my um, question is whether you can find an analysis that allows this kind of situation, which uh, which is called the non-transitivity of indiscriminability, which is, which accepts that it's just a possibility which can be easily realized that there are these series of patches where you cannot discriminate neighbors but you can discriminate the first and the last and the, uh, the question is whether this refutes or not the existence of looks whether it's this is compatible with the fact that what I that, that there exists what I call looks or appearances which are aspects of the content of perceptual experience that are directly accessible and completely accessible, which are not hidden in any way to the subject. And um, I, I try to show that looks, if, if you take looks as manifestations of powers, then you can um, accept both of these uh, constraints, whereas all other um, solutions that have appeared in the literature deny the existence of looks. At least that's what I, uh, what I try to show. Uh, so you have these three principles and uh, either you drop all of them, like Armstrong says you should drop all of them because there are no looks. No oh, well, you say there are no sense data, but you can, in the same way like Armstrong, you can say there are no looks and go eliminativist about appearances. But maybe that's true, maybe that's a good idea, but it's not a good idea to draw this conclusion uh, just uh, for this reason, just because we have this paradox, because we can solve the paradox by dropping just one of them. And uh, so all uh, people I have found who discuss this, and some of them very recent, uh, they would drop the sameness principle. Uh, so we have Goodman uh, who introduces Quelia and uh, Andy Clark who follows Goodman um, and there are uh, these three authors, Harding, Hellies, and Beckis, they also deny the sameness principle. They, uh, they all say this, what this paradox shows is that in this kind of situation, you look at two things, you cannot distinguish them. You say they look the same to you, but the, this whole situation shows that in fact, you don't know how things appear to you. And in fact, there are, there's a psychological re reality. There are qualia, as Goodman calls them, or there are phenomenal properties, as the others call them, that are different. But they are different unbeknownst to you. You don't know they are different. They, um, you don't know about your own phenomenal properties. Yeah, or you don't know all about your own qualia. That's, that's the way uh, Goodman and Clark put it. So they deny the sameness principle. You have these two items. You say they look the same. And the sameness principle says if they look the same, there's an appearance they have in common. And these people all say their, uh, w um, the truth about the appearance is that they are not the same <laughs> because it's indirectly um, shown so that in different ways by these different authors but it's, they all say it's indirectly obvious or um, 
the conclusion is irresistible that in fact you represent them in different ways. And so, um, uh, these are. This is a way to say there are no appearances because what they call uh, qualia or phenomenal properties, they are not appearances. They don't appear to the subject. It, they are discovered by science, but not by the subject. So it's not appearances. It, it's not phenomenal properties, because phenomenal properties are how things appear to the subject, not to the scientists who, who finds out about them. Well, I, I could have developed this much more. I have just one, um, one slide of, about this. Um, so the existence of looks, so EL, existence of looks, requires the Simonist principle. That's what I have just explained uh, in opposition to all these people. And it also requires the difference principle. That's even more obvious. If things look different, then uh, there must be two appearances. And so the only way to avoid the paradox is dropping the uniqueness principle. And um, this goes very well with the uh, idea that colors and other perceivable properties are multi-track dispositions or powers which give rise to uh, multi-track dispositions. So th that, that colors are powers or dispositions is very traditional, and Locke says it, and Smart says it, among many other people. But maybe it's not so traditional to say they are multi-track uh, dispositions, or powers that give rise to many dispositions. And um, in a way, this is uh, very well known, or it's very compatible what, about what we know about perception of colors, because we know that context contributes to determine how things look. And so different subjects, uh, even in normal or optimal viewing conditions, and, at different, uh, and even the same su subject at different times, will have different appearances when when, it, when the subject is looking at the same item. So um, the idea is that the same color, the same objective property in the uh, perceived object will give rise to many dispositions and uh, each disposition corresponds to one situation which is a triggering condition and in this situation you have both objective and subjective factors. So each um, situation where you have other objects in the surrounding and each situation where you have perceived uh, uh, different things before and different uh, psychological um, situation gives, gives you a different disposition and so uh, the same object can uh, appear in many different ways. Even if um, situ the situation is the viewing conditions are optimal. Uh, so um, there, uh, we have these, uh, this middle term in the in our paradox, and it has just one color. And I say this is it has just one power. The the, the color is a powerful property, but it gives the the subject uh, who observes it different dispositions to appear to it, and. Um, 
for each situation there's a different disposition and the, the situation where it's compared to A is a different um, disposition uh, with respect to the situation where the, the middle item is compared to C. And so in each of these comparisons there is a different appearance, a, di a different way in which the color manifests itself. So it appears different when you look at the middle item and while at the same time looking at the left and a different appearance when you look at the middle item while you look at the same time to the item to the right. So um, there here we have we get both objective power and subjective power because the, this appearance must be mediated by a representation but the appearance is not a power, the appearance is the manifestation. So that's, that's, uh, that's the idea. And the look or the appearance is um, something that exists only at the moment and, and in case you judge it to be equal or different. So when you make this perceptual judgment uh, about difference or uh, similarity or identity, or you judge it to fall under a concept to say this is an orange or a yellow item, then there, uh, th this judgment gives rise to an appearance. This, uh, this gives rise to a manifestation of the disposition. And there's nothing more about the appearance than the content of the judgment. So there's nothing you can ignore about it. It's all appearance. But it goes, it goes away immediately with the... It's, it exists only at the moment of the judgment. So this is uh, my um, suggestion uh, of how you can reconcile the acknowledging the, of the existence of these situations where you have non-transitivity of discriminability and you have nevertheless have the existence of looks that is, you have things that are the content of the experience, of the perceptual experience, and that the subject completely knows. I'm sure that this is very problematic, and I have a couple of questions to myself, which I can, in part, uh, I have, a, in part, uh, an idea of how, how I could answer them. One is that um, if, you, if I say that the look is, uh, the look of A, so the look of the middle item, how it appears, it's constituted by how I judge it to be with respect to a second item. You might say, this presupposes that I already know how the second item appears, so it's somehow the first step to a regress or to a circle. And maybe the reply to this problem is that to say that it doesn't presuppose that I already know the, the look of the second item, but the appearance of both items are constituted by these comparison judgments. So it's only by comparing things that they appear to me, or by uh, judging that they fall on the concepts. These are two possibilities. Do you uh, need concepts to make these comparison <coughs> judgments, or to make perceptual judgments that give rise to appearance? appearances. It would be strange to say yes because then all animals or uh, young children who have no concepts would have no appearances. That sounds, that's probably false. So you could say something, you could try to um, answer this by saying that it's making judgments 
that is basic and in sophisticated animals like us this gives rise to, uh, to concepts and so we apply concepts but perceptual judgments can be made by animals for example without concepts and so they also have appearances and another question is uh, whether representation is enough for having phenomenal consciousness like uh, Gretzky and Ty say this, uh, that they can explain everything about appearances, about phenomenal consciousness just by explaining representation. And this would not be true if what I say is, oh, it's, it's incompatible with, that, with what I say because representing properties is not sufficient for properties appearing to the subject because you need more than just to represent things you also need to pay attention to things and to make judgments about uh, things you represent. So this is very famous uh, in the case of change blindness and inattentional blindness. I don't know whether you have seen these experiments where you look at very obvious facts or very obvious changes in a visual scene and you just don't notice the changes. Uh, so you, you have to be shown afterwards. You, you look at a film and you see certain things and there are things that are very massive and very central in focus and you don't see them because you don't pay attention to them. So this is, uh, I, I, if you don't know it, um, you would have to, uh, to be shown this to understand what, I, what I'm talking about. But it's just, uh, there's a whole field in psychology which uh, is, is being explored and which shows us that there are a lot more things uh, which are somehow represented by our um, brain or by our cognition and we are not aware of it. So there's no uh, phenomenal consciousness of these, of the, uh, lots of things. It's just that parts of the visual scene that we pay attention to that become conscious and that give rise to qualia or to appearances. So uh, there, this shows that there are representations which are not, uh, which give not rise to appearances or looks. Uh, so it's not enough to represent. So it's not the, the theory by uh, Dretzky and Ty um, leaves something out. So that's what I have just said. Um, so what kind of, so I say appearances or looks result from a kind of cognitive act. You must do something about uh, your um, content of your perception so that things appear to you. What exactly do you have to do? Is it pay attention or is it pay attention and judge? And uh, is it enough to make comparison judgments or, or is it also enough to have um, judgments which are just about one item but which are judgments that the item falls under a concept if you are uh, a subject that has concepts? Uh, so this is just um, an open question and I have no, uh, no answer to this. And the conclusion is that um, Perceptible properties, so I have spoken only about colors, but it works the same for other things that give rise to um, qualitative appearance. They are multi-track powers and they are objective. They are um, not in the subject, in the representations. And 
they ground, each power grounds many dispositions and the appearances or looks in the case of vision, they are the manifestations that correspond to these dispositions. And what all these people I have short mentioned, Goodman and Clark and Hardin and Helly, what they call qualia are not what uh, what we should call uh, qualia, because they, what they call qualia are are powers. They are just subjective powers. They are things uh, that belong to the subject and that the subject knows only partially and that give rise to manifestations uh, which are um, which give it access to these powers but it's, they are not directly known to the subject. So they are subjective powers. Goodman's qualia. And that's the end of it. Thank you.